please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Now, I call it a book because there are 66 books in the one book we call the Bible, but of course, there are different kinds of books among the 66 said books. This book, Ephesians, is technically not just a book, but it's actually a letter, what we call an epistle. It was written by the historic apostle Paul in the first century, and Paul wrote this letter, this epistle, while he was in prison in Rome. During his imprisonment in Rome, he wrote a number of letters that we call the prison epistles or prison letters. They are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Paul, he's in jail and he's just burdened thinking about the church. And so he writes letters to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, the church in Philippi, Philippians, the church in Colossae, Colossians. And he also writes a personal letter to one named Philemon. Uh, so the letter of Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians, these are the four prison epistles. They, they date around approximately 61 to 62 A.D. while he is in prison. Uh, we just finished in our book club reading uh, King's Why We Can't Wait. And this book was built around a prison letter, the letter from a Birmingham jail, which is one of the chapters in the book. And, and that letter was so effective and, and rippled through the culture that it, it took on its own life. And, and King you know, wrote, wrote a book around it that uh, you know, m many have read and, and is shaping ideas and what have you. But at its root, the letter from a Birmingham jail, it, it, it's a pastor uh, writing to fellow believers to address particular things in the culture. Uh, similarly, Ephesians is that. You have a, a pastor, an apostle, Paul, and he is in prison, in prison for his faith, for exercising his faith. And, and while he is in there, he isn't self-loathing and woe is me. But while he's in jail, as we see in the book of Acts, these, these guys are singing in jail, they're praying in jail, they're evangelizing in jail, and they're also writing letters to churches because they're burdened for the church and they need to address things particularly that they see and hear that are going on with these specific congregations. Last week, we started Ephesians chapter 4, and this week I aim to finish it. In the message last week that I entitled, Ordered Saints, Service and Positions, we saw the, the opening of this section in his letter as he's, he's charging them to continue walking in the faith. So last week we had ordered saints, and this week we have old selves, self and put-ons, and you'll understand the meaning of that in just a moment. Now, before we get into Ephesians, let me say something about this phrase, put-ons, in the subtitle of our message this morning. Put-ons. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, you'll see uh, the phrase there, put on the new self. Uh, he wants the readers to put on the new self. In fact, in our public reading of Scripture this morning, we uh, had a reading from Colossians chapter 3, in which we saw this same phraseology, where... The same guy, the Apostle Paul, is using this phraseology of, of putting on, of putting on things new and, and taking off things old. Uh, to put on, and duo in the Greek, and duo is a term that gets used for putting on a garment. When you, when you put on a jacket, that's in duo. And so Paul's using a, a phrase that has a, a, a clothing kind of metaphor for it, you know, to get dressed up, you know, to get dressed up. Um, um, you, you know, when I was a kid, they actually made us wear suits to church. So kids today, they got it easy, right? And, you know, my kids sometimes on a Sunday morning, they'll come out or whatever. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, you can't wear that to church, you know. Uh, like, go, go back to your room, you know, and, and put, on, put on something decent. And do, oh, put on, to put on the garment. And Paul uses language like this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. If you look up here, for you were baptized into Christ, you have clothed 
yourselves in Christ. It's the same word here for clothe and do oh, it's it's clothing. It's 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 putting it's putting on your your attire. This is a very effective metaphor. Um, I think we, we all relate to you know putting on clo- clothing. Obviously, you're all dressed. Thank you for doing that. Um, but but you know when you put on something in particular that's nice, right? When you put on something that's nice, when you when you spend some money on something that's nice, and you you know you put it on, it kind of changes the way you feel. Uh, when I was a teenager, you know, and in the summers you're off school or whatever, but you know it's back to school time is coming, you know. The old man would say, "We gotta go get you some clothes for school." And you know, I was like going to to the mall and getting clothes. Or when I started earning my own paychecks as a teenager, I got a job. I just love, you know, buying some clothes, buying some nice shoes. Standing, and this was the era of the Jordans, right? So you'd have to stand in line and get the new Jordans, and you, you put on those shoes, and you just feel. You feel like Michael Jordan. Of course, you, you, don't, uh, you can't jump like him, but you know, they just make you feel a certain way when you have something nice on. There's a whole science of fashion. Psychologists actually spill a lot of, a lot of ink talking about this uh, anthropological phenomenon of, of how when we put on something nice, it, it makes us feel nice. Listen to what one social psychologist wrote. The psychology of clothing is complex and it taps into culture, symbolism, neuroscience, sexuality, and many more aspects of the human experience. Fashion and clothing influences behavior in multiple ways. Our perception of ourselves, how others react to us, our confidence, our self-esteem. The psychology of clothing touches on notions of self and identity, including conformity. Do you dress to fit in with social norms or do you resist and challenge the status quo? Self-expression. Are your clothes a signal to others about your values and your beliefs? Cultural identity. Do you choose what to wear as an expression of your cultural identity? Uh, gender roles. Do, you clo- do your clothes reinforce traditional gender roles and expectations? Or do you challenge and subvert them? There's a whole lot of subverting today, but anyway. Um, science even has a name for this phenomenon. It is called enclosed cognition. And it describes how the clothes we wear affect our behavior, our attitudes, our personality, our mood, our confidence, and even the way we interact with each other. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul in 61-62 AD, as he's in jail writing to the Ephesians, the, the saints in Ephesus, this is long before our over-psychologized culture. Okay? But it doesn't, it doesn't take uh, you know, our, our contemporary psycho- psychological culture to understand that there is a phenomenon of this enclosed cognition. You, you put something on, and it does have self-expression, and it does play a role in your identity. And so Paul very powerfully, very insightfully, before our contemporary term uh, enclosed cognition, he, he uses that impulse. And he says, be clothed in Christ. Your clothes identify you. They, they, they say things about you. You are to be clothed in Christ. That is where your identity is found, in Christ. Clothes have a way of impacting the way that we feel. Clothes have a way of, 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 of making others look at us in particular ways. What you wear is a message to others and to yourself about who you are. Wearing a pilot uniform shows you're a pilot. Wearing a police uniform shows that you're a cop. Putting on athletic shoes implies you're athletic, but, you know... I'm, I'm quite out of shape, and I got my Nikes on, right? Uh, d- dirty clothes implies maybe you're poor or you're homeless. So too, being clothed in Christ 
There ought to change how we feel and how we're perceived uh, with, with specific implications for our identity. Okay, you have Ephesians 4 in front of you. Recall, last week we, we, we studied, if you weren't here, don't worry, you're not going to be lost. Paul urges in the opening chapter there, in Ephesians chapter 4, you can even, even read the opening verses there, he, he urges the audience to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Walking is a metaphor. Uh, last week I talked to you about halakha, halakha, to walk, halakha in, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, it, it spoke to Jewish law, Torah. Uh, the Torah is the agreement of the community in how we're going to live. Halakha. This is what we say we believe, and this is how we are to behave. And our community believes that we should believe these things and behave according to these halakha, these traditions. So, so, so to walk then is a halakha is a very powerful metaphor. It's a following after. It's a it's a way of life. In those uh, verses, we see Paul uh, urging the Ephesians to continue on in the Christian life. In the verses we will study today, he's going to build on this halakha, this obedience to Christ, this identity in Christ, as he talks about putting on and being clothed in Christ. He talks not only about putting on Christ, but he also talks about putting off, putting off the things of the world. And Paul's going to urge the church and the saints to walk not just in their individual walk with Christ, but together as a community after the Lord. As we continue on in the passage this morning, we'll see Paul building on this emphasis of unity. Uh, specifically, he's going to go after things that fight against unity, which is sin. Paul is going to talk about their former lives and their old selves, hence the title of the message this morning, Old Selves. And, and he's, going to, uh, uh, he's going to compare the old self to old clothing that you ought to get rid of because now you have new clothes. Uh, and maybe some parents, you, you relate to that, where you buy your kids new stuff and they're still wearing the old stuff. You're like, come on, man, like, we, I got you new clothes. What are you doing? You know, put, on the, put on the new ones. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Let's begin the text. We left off last week at verse 16. Let's start by looking at how verse 17 opens. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. This I say and affirm together with the Lord. Let me pause there for just a second because I, I think uh, you can read past this and think Paul's just like, hey, let me, let me give you my take. Let me tell you what I think about this. Uh, you know, and sometimes people will say, hey, Pastor Matt, what do you think about what's going on at Osbury? Or what do you think of what's going on with the president? Or what do you think? You know, and it's like, well, I mean, I think this, but that's just like my opinion. Paul's doing more than opinion here. He uses a, a, a word that I don't know that our English translation here, affirm, does justice to. He uses a term, martyrion. Uh, you hear martyr, you, you, you think of our contemporary word being martyr. Martyrion is an ancient word that is used when you are on trial for something. Like martyrs would be put on trial for their faith. And when you're put on trial, you give a martyrion, uh, which is a testimony, a testifying in a legal context. If, if you are standing in a court and you come forward, you make a, a martyrion. You, you offer evidence. You give, you give testimony. I like the way that the New English translation has rendered this. It says, so I say, and insist, rather than affirm, uh, uh, insist. You might circle that if it's your Bible and write insist. 
or, or as well next to insist, you could write the way that the ESV and the CSV translate it, I testify. I want you to understand that Paul's not just saying, this is my hot take. He's throwing down his apostolic gauntlet and saying, this, this, I'm speak, what I'm about to tell you, this is March Rome. Like, this is serious business. Uh, th- that verb makes a very uh, a solemn declaration of insistence. I solemnly declare. Okay, that, that, that would be maybe a modern equivalent. I solemnly declare. This is the truth. So help me God. I solemnly declare. It shows that he is ministering by the authority of Christ. It's the apostolic chin check. I'm, I'm not just any old guy writing to you. This is an apostle who has a word from the Lord. I think of what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to this. When Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica, he said, When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. This, this section we're about to read, what he's about to drop on the, on the Ephesians and us by extension, is a word from God. Now let's read it in full and then I'll pick it apart. So let's start back at verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of the mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of the heart, and they have become callous. They've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, but you, you, you didn't learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as, uh, as truth in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being uh, corrupted in accordance with the lust of, of deceit, and, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on... The new self, be clothed with the new self, which in the likeness of God has been uh, created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Okay, now, now I'm gonna, we, we got the text, and now I'm going to exposit it. I'm going to pull from the text meaning and teach the text and herald the gospel to you this morning. Uh, Let's begin picking it apart with uh, his opening here in verses 17 through 19. Paul starts by talking about painful memories, point one on your outline. This, I I say, you you remember this, this old way that you used to live. The Gentiles, he talks about. We, we talk a lot about this when we're in the New Testament. The, the kind of two broad ethnic groups are the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people known as the Gentiles. There's a great deal of hostility between the communities, and particularly the Gentiles are op- oppressors of the Jewish people. And, and in their oppression, they are quite in your face about their sordid way of living. The Gentiles uh, lived a, a very uh, a promiscuous, perverted, kinky, confused lifestyle to say the least. Uh, and, 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 and Ephesus was, was a town that was full of this stuff. I'll say more on that in just a moment. And so he's, he's reminding them, look, there's, there's people in, in the congregation, in the church of Ephesus, who've, who've been rescued from, a subpoint under painful memories, they've been rescued from the darkness. And he's reminding them of their past darkness, being darkened in, in their understanding. You used to be, like, in that, in that context, and, and you've been rescued by Christ from this. You know, sometimes when the Lord saves us out of a dark lifestyle or, or a sinful community, we can forget our past. 
Uh, sometimes when the Lord rescues us out, out of a, a, a dark place and he, he brings us in among His people and saves us and washes us, sometimes in our immaturity, we can become very judgmental at, at, at the very people that we used to be. Often that is the case. The, the, the sins that we once struggled with or the sins we still struggle with are, are the ones that, you know, when they rear their heads, we, we, we see it and we, oh, you know, those people over there. What do you mean those people? That was you. But by the grace of God, that would still be you. And so, so, so Paul wants to remind them of the past lest you walk in, in judgmentalism towards others. Uh, another danger, of course, which is more the crux of Paul's argument, is, is lest you lapse back into those things. Because the past doesn't always stay the past. The past has a way of creeping up in the present. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 says that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to master you. The past doesn't want to stay past. It wants to come back and get you. And so, so Paul's metaphor of the halakha, of, of walking, is important because in the Christian life you can't stand still. There's no, there's no neutrality. There's no just standing still. You have to walk. Because when you, when you walk, the past gets further and further from you. Halakha. Keep walking. Remember, remember what you were saved from. Walk, walk, walk away from that. No longer walk. No more halakha and that stuff. It, Ephesus was a dark context, as I said a moment ago. It was filled, filled with temptations. Unlike Los Angeles, it's really hard to get in trouble. Right? No. Like, there's, you can get yourself in trouble really quick in, in a city. And uh, heck, with the internet, you could get yourself in trouble in just like seconds on phones and tablets and stuff like that, which is why we try to keep those from our kids in our house. The, the tablet is just, the phone, it's, the internet, it's just a vortex. In seconds, you will find yourself in worldly halakha. Ephesus might not have had that technology, but it was just as accessible at the fingertips. As one commentator notes, at the heart of the city's life and economy was the worship of Artemis. I showed you pictures of Artemis last week, the ancient fertility goddess. There was a massive temple dedicated to Artemis that was 450 feet long, 220 feet wide, and it had more than 120 columns, uh, uh, 60 feet high. And, and it, I mean, this it, is one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world on, on, the, seven, on the sevens list of ancient wonders. That, that, that's in Ephesus. Because Artemis was considered so powerful and protective of her temple, people from all over the world would go there. They would deposit money in the temple, which in turn was loaned out at a very high interest rate. And so it's not only pagan worship, but it's also the center of economy, which incidentally, worship and economy tend to go together that way, and immorality. Thus the Ephesians, as a city and a culture, had become extremely wealthy, and, and woven into that wealth is paganism and immorality. Naturally, they're very protective of the goddess who made them successful and powerful and rich. It took a passionate commitment and a courage for the early Christians to stand up for their beliefs in this culture and in the face of serious persecution. Uh, but, but given the nature of Artemis and the cults, and given that it was woven through the, the fabric of their lives, I, if, if you've got to get some money out of the ATM or whatever, you've got to go down to Artemis. And, and maybe you used to be a part of the Artemis cult. 
Maybe you engaged in, you know, in, in sex acts with the, with, 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 with the cult because they were known for doing that. I'm editing because there's little ears in the room, but they did some wild stuff in there. But if you want to get money, that's where you got to go. If you want to get meat, if you want to get certain things, that's where you got to go. The, the meat that you feed your family with, most of it in town is coming through these pagan contexts. There, you don't have the option of being an ostrich in Ephesus and putting your head in the ground. It's, it's everywhere. It's a lot like Los Angeles. You find yourself driving around and just smutty billboard. You're like, why? Like, are you serious? You know, I'm just, you're just trying to go about your day or whatever. Boom, boom, in your face. Ephesus was in your face. It was hard to halakha in Ephesus. Verse 17, So I say and I affirm together with the Lord that you no longer, no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now, Paul's a Jewish man, and he's bringing up the Gentiles, and that could be a touchy issue given the, the, the ethnic division and divide in the culture that had certainly found its way into the church. Ephesus as a city had a very large Jewish community, and so they're, they're, uh, you know, we, don't, we don't have an ethnic makeup of, of those in attendance and membership at Ephesus, but on good reason, we believe there's a number of, of Jews in the congregation. And in the Jewish context... Uh, this is a much more conservative context. Uh, families are different. They're, they're, you know, from a tradition of already worshiping one God. And of course, the, the one God of Israel is the one God of creation, who's Father, Son, and Spirit. So for the people of Israel who've been worshiping the one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit, and have received the revelation of God in Christ, the Son who had become a man in fulfillment of the prophecies to, 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 to Israel of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant. For, for those Jews in that context, and, and they're, sort of, they're following after the Messiah, they have their own different cultural challenges, uh, specific to making sense out of the law of Moses and kosher and, and different sorts of pressures, but they're tame compared to the darkness that Gentiles were coming out of. And this is the kind of church that you want, though. You, you, want, you, you don't want a haven for the saints. You want, a, you want a hospital for the sick. And if the gospel's going forth in the city, then that's what you're going to see. You're going to see pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers and, and cult leaders coming in and getting saved. And when they do, when they do, it, 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 it sort of you know, causes the church to think about, look, look at the lost that are out there and, and, and what is this place for? In fact, as I say this, I, I shared with you that we're taking a field trip for the youth group to go see the Jesus Revolution movie. Um, and while, while the movie's gospel light, but uh, it, it's an incredible documentary of a movement that happened in Southern California in the 70s, the Jesus People Movement. Uh, and it does a fine job really documenting this movement and what later will become Calvary Chapel and around you know, uh, Chuck Smith. In fact, in the movie, Chuck Smith is played by Kelsey Grammer, which is crazy. Because I grew up watching Cheers, so I'm like, you know, Kelsey Grammer, you know, this is crazy. Is uh, Norm going to be Raul Reese? Whatever. But, uh, you know, you're watching it, and you're going, man, this is crazy. And part of what the movie really does a good job at is it, it captures the drug culture and the sexual revolution going on at the time. And it captures the church in that era through this one particular church that uh, Chuck Smith was pastoring at the time where they said, we don't want the hippies to come to church here. They're going to mess up the carpets. They, you know, they're druggies. They're dirty. We don't want them to come here. And it, it captures that move as the church transitioned and said, no, 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 this, this is what God is doing. He rescues people from darkness. This isn't a haven for the saints. It's a hospital for the sick. 
it's a, it's a training ground, of course, for the saints. That's, what, that's why we're here. But, and, and, you know, I don't typically endorse movies or whatever in sermons. But to, to make a parallel here, what Paul's talking about, it's a movement like that where you have people coming off of drugs and coming out of promiscuity, people who have AIDS and addiction and darkness and mental issues, and, and they're coming in, and then, you know, the church goes, okay, how do, what do we do with this? Those, those Gentiles are, are, are like that. Those Artemis worshipers. And more than Ar- Artemis, they're polytheists. They have all kinds of gods. Those are, those are dark people. There's an extra-biblical Jewish book known as the Book of Wisdom, or the Wisdom of Solomon. It's not a part of our Bibles, but it's, a, it's an ancient piece of literature that's worth studying. Uh, it dates back to the mid-century uh, B.C. And uh, in chapters 13 and 14 of the Wisdom of Solomon, it describes from a Jewish perspective... The Gentiles. It says they're nature worshipers. They don't know God. Uh, it very much mirrors, uh, you know, what, what Paul is saying here. And so if you, if you, you can pull it up online. It's a, a fun, quick read, the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, um, chapters 13 and 14. It mirrors what Paul is saying here. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Speaking of ancients, Christian theologian Origen, who was born in the 100s, reflected on what Paul was saying here. And Origen wrote, consider what... Uh, Paul calls futility of mind. This occurs when someone has a mind but does not use it for contemplation, instead surrendering, surrendering it to the captivity under Satan. Origen is right to see the devil in the details. Ephesians speaks much about demonic powers and spiritual warfare and, and Christ reigning over these cosmic powers. The thing, of course, though, is that those powers and that darkness is not just out there, it is also in here in all of us, not just in the Gentiles, but also in the people of God. We're, we're born this way. We're born, we're born fallen. The, the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's deep within. Paul here hits on four things that characterize our fallen natures in verse 17, 18, and 19. If you're taking notes, you can write down the four things. First, they walk in the futility of their mind. Second, they are darkened in their understanding. Third, they are alienated from the life of God. First, first, they walk in the futility of their minds. Second, they are darkened in their understanding. Third, they are alienated from the life of God. Look at verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. Look at 18, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Excluded. Alienation. The, the Gentiles were alienated from Israel in the days of old. When you go back in the Old Testament story, these, they are foreigners. They are not of the people. They are not in covenant with God. They are excluded. They are outside. You're outside the covenant of God. You're excluded. You're alienated. You're far from Him. Look at what verse 12 of Ephesians 2 says. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Flip a page and find your way to verse 12 of Ephesians 2. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You're not just excluded from Israel and the covenant, you're excluded from God. Look back at chapter 4, verse 18. He says you're excluded from the life of God. I said Paul gives us four things to characterize them. Number one, they walk in the futility of their mind. Number two, they're darkened in understanding. Number three, they're alienated from the life of God. And number four, they have become despondent and given themselves over. 
Look at verse 19. They have become callous. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He's, he's talking about their painful memories of the past. He's, 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 he's talking about the darkness even in the present. He's talking fundamentally, the next sub-point under point one, about the depravity of humanity. In Christian theology, we use this phrase, depravity. We often uh, 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 preface it with total, total depravity to speak about the absolute pervasiveness of sin that is within us. Related to total depravity, we talk about total inability to describe the sinner's complete incapacity to respond to, or for that matter, to seek God on our own. As Paul wrote to the Romans, no one seeks God, no, not one. In fact, let me put Romans in front of you so that you can keep camped in Ephesians 4 because in Romans, what Paul is describing here in Ephesians 4.19, Paul gives an extended commentary on what he's describing. Romans chapter 1, I'll put it in front of you, verses 24 through 32. This same language of verse 19 of giving themselves over, we see here in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They worshipped the, the creature. That's what the, 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 the wisdom of Solomon says. They're, they're nature worshippers. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. It talks about sexual perversion, dishonoring. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to, the, to those things that are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips. Right? He, he's going after everyone. Sexual perversion, gossipers, slanderers, verse 30. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Although they know the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. Which is, makes sense. God is the giver of life. You rebel against the giver of life, life is taken back. As the scriptures explain, the wages of sin is death. That's a, that's a very fair thing. You rebel against the one who gives you life. He, he loves you. But what is justice for life to be taken back? Now, these descriptions that we have here in Romans 1 are matching what we're reading in Ephesians 4. It's, it's making the same point that our, our hearts, Ephesians 4, 18, they're, they're hard. They're hard. They're dark. It's dark in there. This is the danger in our culture of this message of you know, just be true to yourself. You know, just find yourself and follow you. You know, no, don't do that. Uh, you you want to mess your life up? Listen to yourself. You know, follow, follow your heart. Yeah, that's, that's going to lead you in all sorts of sordid places. As the scriptures tell us, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can understand it? The prophet Jeremiah asks. This is the condition of humanity. Of course, it wasn't always the condition of humanity because when God made humanity... They didn't have this condition. But our father and our mother turned in rebellion against God, and as a result of this rebellion, we are born into a world that is at war with God. Hence, the Bible rightly declares us as enemies of God. 
You could, you could be in a nation that's having war with another nation, and you could say, hey, what, uh, well, I don't have any beef with them, but you're at war with them nonetheless because those ahead of you made certain decisions that placed you in hostility with the other nation. And so too, those who are ahead of us, our, our federal head specifically, Adam, has ushered us into a war with the Creator, and it's a war that we are born into. It is not an abstract war. It is a real war, and the war isn't just out there, in terms of when you die and you stand before God as your judge, but the war is raging within. In the Hebrew Bible, a heart was said to be hardened, and Paul picks up that language. When, when the will of a, of a thinking person has become insensitive to God and stands against God and, and joins in that rebellion. Now, the fact of the matter, we're actually born into the rebellion. We're, we're, we're born this way. Our hearts are born hard. We're not running around seeking after God. We're, we're, we're described here in Romans. We're described here in Ephesians. I'm thinking of the hard, the hard heart. Many students of scriptures will think of the story of the Pharaoh in Exodus. You recall the story of the Pharaoh in Exodus? And, and it has the repeated phrase about his heart being hard. In fact, uh, many struggle with this section of Scripture in Exodus because it, it speaks of, of the Pharaoh hardening his heart, which most of us were like fine with that. But then there's other instances, like in Exodus 4.21, 7.3, and 14.4, where it talks about God hardening his heart. And moderns, we struggle with that. We go, oh, that's not fair. Well, you know, God's going like, to harden his heart, and you know, that, that, that's not fair. You know, how, how, can, how can God you know, do this? In fact, with Romans in front of us, it is worth noting that that, that, brings us, that brings that very issue up in that epistle. Romans 9, 17 and 18, we read, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. Now again, moderns were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, 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 that's the Bible. You've got you to gotta get with it. From an uninformed human perspective, it might seem wrong for God to harden a person and then punish that person that He has hardened. However, biblically speaking, we've all sinned against God. Romans 3.23. And the just penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23. Therefore, God's hardening and punishing of a person is not unjust. It is actually merciful in comparison to what we deserve. We deserve far worse. Far worse. On the note of what we deserve and our responsibility for our heart and hearts, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that they have given themselves over to this, verse 19, placing depravity squarely on our shoulders. While I'm born depraved, I've also immersed myself in the darkness and I'm justly held accountable for this. And as it relates to total depravity, it is important to note that it does not mean that the unsaved never do anything good. Nor does it mean that the unsaved have no disposition to do what is right. Again, with Romans in front of us, uh, right, Paul talks about the law being written on their hearts, Romans 2, 14 and 15. You have a conscience. This is, this is a, 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 an anthropological phenomenon all around the world that when, when humans do wrong things, they feel it within. They, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. We've all experienced this, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or that was wrong. Feelings of, of guilt, that's, that's there by nature of the Creator because he's placed his law in our hearts. That said, the law of God is not enough for salvation. The, the purpose of the law is, is in giving order and revealing God's holiness. And, and so you say, don't do this. Do this. And humanity in this rebellion and depravity, we find ourselves hearing the don't do this and we do it and the do this and we don't do it. 
The purpose of the law isn't to provide salvation for us. Rather, it's to show us that we need salvation. I feel guilty. Oh, well, what are you going to do with that? I'll try harder. Yeah, how's that working out? I feel more guilty, right? What's going to lift your guilt? Not law, the Lord. Hence the need for law and gospel. Behold the one who has come, who has done all the do's and avoided all the don'ts, and he offers himself for you to die in your place. That one is the one, the Son who has become flesh, fully God and fully man. As a man, he lives the life that humanity has not lived. As a man, he dies in the place of humanity on the cross. As, as God, it is his prerogative to forgive. And so in his humanity, he offers himself as a sacrifice. In his divinity, he offers forgiveness and grace to all who come to him. Now, given our depravity, none would come to him. No one seeks him. No, not one, the scriptures say. We need the gospel and we need the Holy Spirit. And praise God that we have both. We have the Holy Spirit who comes and opens our eyes to see the Son. He gives us new life. He draws us in repentance and faith and He changes our hearts. I fear that in the church today, particularly in North America, many congregations have been sidetracked by the so-called culture wars. We're busy fighting people over different issues in the culture and their good stands and what have you. Albeit these stands have been confused with the gospel and the gospel has taken a back seat. We cannot change hearts by rallying in opposition to gay marriage. We cannot change hearts by marching in defense of the unborn. We cannot change racist hearts by sharing YouTube videos or books or whatever. We cannot change hearts by pointing out the flaws in, in human religions. Now to be sure, we can multitask those things, but the only thing, the only thing that will change hearts is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and that's what he does when he hangs on the tree of Calvary. He takes our sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin. For us. For us. And that message of this triune God who sends His Holy Son to die the place of, of sinful men and to give us that wonderful gift, the gift of faith and repentance and, and, and do this so freely, that is what transforms. That is what changes. And with that in the front, with the gospel being rightly heralded, yes, of course, we will address issues in society that pertain to justice and immorality, with regard to you know, debates around marriage, we need to have those. With regard to the execution of babies in the womb, that's something we need. Racism, you know, dead religions, we are going to be engaging those. But let us not ever forget what the heart of the problem is, our depravity, and what the solution is, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is getting at the heart of the problem so that they can see this and so they can see Christ. They all need to understand the, the painful memories of the past and be reminded of them. Lest they look at others in judgment or, or lest it creep back into their lives. The, the, pro, the problems square with us. The story is told of the London Times at one point in the early 1900s. It, it posed a question to several prominent uh, leaders in, in, in British society. And the question was, what's wrong with the world today? And a well-known author, G.K. Chesterton, is said to have responded to this question with a one-sentence essay. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> what, what's wrong with the world today? I, I, I am. I am. Uh, sidebar here, there's a, a lot of people who have tried to hunt down this, uh, this original you know, newspaper. There's actually uh, one in the Daily News where he says a bit more. It's really fascinating. 
But uh, Chesterton is taking to heart what we're reading here in Ephesians 4 and what we have here in, in Romans. The words of Paul as well to Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. I'll put it in front of you. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So as Paul's saying this, he, he, he's not exempt from this. This is an issue that cuts through us all. This is why we need a Savior. Uh, the reference shows us that, that, that Paul, when he's explaining depravity, he's not pointing the finger at them. It, it points right back at him. He's included in this. The past is powerful to reflect on, to remember what we're rescued from, and also to speak to us. Next point on your outline, in the present moments. Look at verse 20 of Ephesians 4. He says, you did not learn Christ this way. Here Paul speaks a sub-point of education. This is what you, you learned. This is your, your education. What, what, you, what you know in the present to be true about Christ, about belief in Christ and behavior after Christ, he, he, he's contrasting Christian education with pagan education. Christian education, mind you, is taught and caught. You can't just listen to teaching and grow in your Christian life. You also have to, halakha, you have to walk it out in real life with people. It's taught, yes, you listen to word taught and preached, and yes, we teach, but you also have to catch it by living life with others. This is why we encourage everyone in the church to be in a community group, because you'll learn so much about the Christian life by watching others. The Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. He was there for years. These people know him. They learn by watching him, and they learn by sitting at the feet of him as a teacher. Mind you, given depravity, we know that, that teaching and watching someone live is impotent by itself. We need the Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. He cannot understand them because they are, they are discerned only through the Spirit. If we're just teaching and watching you know, our, our lives as examples, nothing's ever going to change but by the Spirit. Paul moves to challenge them with regard to education and secondly to examination, verse 21. If indeed, look at 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. In verse 21, Paul calls for self-examination. If, if, if you have. Consider the possibility that maybe you've just been hearing Christian truth, maybe you've just been seeing Christians living it out, but, but maybe you're relying on something that you don't possess. This is a sobering reality and a danger that is unfortunately more frequent than not. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 13, I'll put it in front of you, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. It is important to read verse 6 uh, with verse uh, 5 because Paul's not trying to create anxiety. Am I saved? Am I not saved? You know, he wants you to examine to be sure, and then there's reassurance with this. And of course, our greatest assurance in terms of our salvation is rooted in, in Christ and what He has accomplished for us in the power of the Spirit. Nevertheless, it is a call for examination of, of, of what we are walking in. This uh, brings us to the next point on the outline. We've looked at painful memories, present moments, and the past me. Paul says that, verse 22, in reference to your former way of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lusts and deceits. So it, it apparently was creeping back in. Some of their former ways of life had been creeping back into the congregation. 
the racial tension of societies maybe creeping in with Jew-Gentile relations because he talks a great deal about how they've been made into one new man. So there's probably racial and ethnic tension that's, that's demonic and worldly that was creeping into the church. There's probably some, some pagan stuff and old ways of life and immorality that's creeping into the church. And, and so he pulls up the past me to say, hey, like you're, you're a new person now. You've got to lay aside that old self. You've got, you got to lay aside that old self. Look, look back at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at what he says in Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. He includes himself, we too, indulging in the desires of the flesh, Ephesians 2, 3, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You're vipers and diapers. You're, sin, you're sinful from conception all the way, all the way to the tomb. You, you, you're, you're, you were born in this rebellion. Paul's, Paul's reminding them of this. Here in chapter 4, earlier in chapter 2, he's reminding them of the darkness. I love the hymn we sang this morning, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, and the line in it, Dark is the stain we cannot hide. Good luck trying to wash yourselves of this thing. It ain't going to work. Because the law presumes obedience. You're not rewarded for obeying the law. You, 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 can't, you can't merit anything under the law. What the law does is it condemns you when you violate it. If I kill someone, I'm condemned for, uh, by the law. I've committed an act of murder. I cannot appeal in the court of God, Your Honor, think of all the people I haven't killed. I'm a really good person. I, I volunteer at the old folks' home. I, I haven't smothered any of them. I'm a quality guy. You, know? no, you, you can't get rewarded for not killing people. That's not how the law works. The law punishes you when you violate it. Good luck trying to clean yourself. Good luck trying to be a good little boy or a good little girl to, to, to make amends for the things that you have done against your Creator. The wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Behold the Christ who died in your place. Amen? And now that you have received Him, put Him on and put off the old stuff and watch out for that stuff. Because it creeps back in. There's triggers around Ephesus. There's triggers around Los Angeles. Triggers are thoughts, feelings, sensations, situations, relationships that can cause someone to return to a vice from the past. Triggers can arise when people feel down uh, or, or when you're in a social setting where there's vices all around you. You could be triggered to succumb. Be around folks who are doing things that you used to do can pull you right back into it. In, in my early walk with the Lord, I really, I really had to distance myself from a lot of friends and situations. I, I just wasn't in a place of, of maturity to be able to walk into those places because I, I didn't want to go back to that. And the Lord, no doubt, will gain you strength and disciple you, and He sends us. I think of, there's some dear sisters that I know of who, who've been rescued from, uh, from, from, uh, from strip clubs. And the Lord saved them, and now they go back into strip clubs. And they witness to dancers and share the gospel of Jesus. They, they stuff little dollar bills in and share the gospel with them. It's like, what are you doing? And they wait for them outside after work and they give them care packets and they share with them Jesus. But, but, but you have to be at a certain place. Don't go back into that stuff. It, it, can pull, it can pull you in. Being around folks that you used to do things, it can pull you in. 
Like someone who's rescued from alcoholism, bars, liquor stores, wineries, casinos, and, and parties, that, that can be a place for stumble. And you might say, you know what, I, I'm, I, I can't go in there. Now, to be sure, we need believers who can to share the good news, but, but hey, look, be careful. Remember the past me. People and places and things. Glasses clinking, bottles popping, cans opening. That, that could trigger things for someone. Uh, credit cards or, or straws could trigger a, a cocaine addict or another drug addict. Or, you know, you, you see something and it can remind you of that. And Paul's like, hey, be careful. Other triggers, fatigue, physical and mental exhaustion. You begin to let your guard down. Depression. Depression, you let your guard down. Watch out for those things. Dishonesty, being dishonest about your feelings, your anger, your resentment. That, that can pull you into self-pity. Boredom and isolation can pull you into things. Stress, lack of sleep, relational loss, physical health, poor, poor self-care. Self-care is an important part of the Christian life. Good self-care is going to make you feel better and give you confidence. Conversely, poor self-care sends messages to yourself that you don't care about your well-being and can trigger a relapse to old ways. But speaking of confidence, we need to be careful with overconfidence because often people find themselves in old ways because they were overconfident. I can handle this. Paul wants the saints to put the past in the past, not let it creep back in. Further, he wants them not just to ditch the past, but to get engaged in the present. Turning away from things isn't just the, the end of the conversation. It's turning to things. We turn away from sin. We turn to repentance. We turn away from the world's gods and we turn to the true and living God. That's what repentance is. Metanoeo, the word for repentance in the Bible, is, it, it literally means to turn. And so if, I, if I'm turning from, from the audience, then I'm turning to right, the stage, the cross. I'm not just turning, but I'm turning from, I'm turning to. You, you have to put off the old, but you also have to put on the new. Verse 23 that you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the old self that is in the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Paul says, lay aside. Lay aside. Okay? And the word that he uses here is a word that is employed for the process of renewal. He wants to see the mind renewed, which brings us from painful memories, present moments, past me, to a pristine mind. Pristine is to be clean, to be new, to restore something to its pristine condition. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says God's work of salvation, changing our hearts, changing our minds, it's a total transformation. There's no going back. There's no middle ground to speak of. Either you're walking with Christ or you're walking in the world. You, 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 you can't surf on two surfboards. They're going to go in different directions. Someone's going to find a TikTok of someone doing it, I know, and then ruins my illustration, but you get the idea. Either you're clothed in Christ or you're clothed in the world. In Ephesians 2.24, Paul says, put on the new self. It's as I said in the introduction, in duo, this is a garment being clothed in Christ, and that entails renewal. Verse 23, so that you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's renewal. Romans 12 speaks of that renewal. He uses this word, ananeo, which is a word that is used in the ancient world for becoming new, becoming young again. Ananeo. You need to become young again. I think of Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus calls the disciples 
and he asks him that great question, uh, uh, you know, about, about who's the greatest in the, in the kingdom, and, and he calls a child, and he says, he, he puts the child in the midst of them, and what does Jesus say? He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Become young again. Ephesians uh, 4.12 also speaks not just of, of renewal, but also of righteousness. That's the next sub-point. Put on the, verse 24, the new self, which is in the likeness of God, being created in righteousness and holiness and truth. There's a righteousness that comes from God in our salvation. We call this the doctrine of imputation. Imputation explains how God credits us the righteousness of Christ when we are saved. It's not just that God forgives your sins and wipes the count clean and now you've got to go do it on your own. It's that He deposits the full bounty of Christ into your account and you'll never sin your way out of His righteousness. So that on the day of judgment, God doesn't see our sins, but He actually sees Christ's obedience. His righteousness credited to your account. Romans 5 says, By the righteousness of Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life, so by the obedience of the one shall many be made righteous. That's Romans 5, 18 and 19. God chooses not only to remember our sins no more and wipe them away, but He also gives us an imputation of His righteousness. You know, in Scripture, God cares about righteousness. If you read your Bible, you know He cares about righteousness. So imputation matters. You either need to have your own righteousness through the law or, or a righteousness from God that comes by faith. Paul thought his righteousness by the law was nothing. It wouldn't merit anything. As for me personally, I, Matt Jones, I got a lot of sins. And even my, my best works, according to Scripture, are like filthy rags. I want to take the gift of Christ's righteousness, thank you very much, on both the o obedience of the precept and the enduring of the penalty. The clothing language in Ephesians is powerful in light of this. We've been clothed in His righteousness. Paul speaks of this putting on elsewhere. As we began our worship service, we read from Colossians 3, the, the putting on of the new self that is also being renewed, that same language of renewal. The, the, the image here of the likeness of God is to say it comes from God. Romans 8.29 speaks of, of us being conformed to the image of His Son. It's so, it's so wonderful, this great, this great gift that, that, that God isn't going to save you and leave you where you are. He's actually changing you, and He's actually made you a part of His family, which leads to the next, the second to last point, passionate members. Passionate members. Verse 25, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak the truth, each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Uh, here he speaks of falsehood. Uh, I quoted earlier Colossians 3.10, putting on uh, the renewal as a, a parallel of Colossians 3 to Ephesians 4. It's worth noting that the verse before what I quoted, Colossians 3.9, says, Do not lie to one another. Lay aside the old self. This is in the Big Ten Commandments. Proverbs 12.22 says the Lord hates liars. So all of us are condemned in that. You say, I, I haven't, I'm not a liar. You're lying right now. You're a liar. <laughs> We're all li we've all lied. This is why we need the gospel. Lying destroys our relationship not only with God, but it destroys our relationship with others, which is why you have this subpoint here, falsehood and family. We are members of one another. He's speaking of the body of Christ. Here Paul quotes from the Hebrew Bible, Zechariah 8.16. Interestingly, though, it, it's not from the Hebrew. He quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of it. And the word neighbor there in the Septuagint, it, it means an Israelite. We're all fellow members in the covenants that were made by God to the people of Israel. Let's land the plane with the final point. 
We've learned about painful memories, present moments, the past me, a pristine mind, being passionate members together in the body, and finally, the practicality of this message. Remember your past. I could give you something to walk away with. Remember your past so that you can be grateful of what you were rescued from. And if when I say remember your past, you say to yourself, my past was fine. Not according to the law of God. Now, if you're looking at other people, sure, right? You might, oh, you know, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, whatever. But according to the law of God, you will stand condemned. As Jesus pointed out to, 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 to those surrounding his teaching ministry, oh, you say you've never killed anyone, but you've, you've had anger in your heart. And that's just the same. You say you've never committed adultery, but you've had lust in your heart. That's just the same. Maybe you ne never committed adultery because, you know, your, your clothing game is whack and you don't look so good. So you weren't able to pull that off. But you don't, you, you don't get away with it just because uh, your, your face isn't looking good and your clothes aren't clean. Like, you, you, you've all been condemned within. Remember the darkness of the past and give thanks to God that He rescued you so that you won't be judgmental of those who are still in the darkness. Look, the darkness is dark by definition. You can't be mad at the darkness for being dark. We had a power outage this week and our house was out for like 14 hours. It was horrible. I was really mad at the dark. But you can't be mad at the dark, Edison. Uh, you, you can't. It's, it's dark. Our job, we've been made the light. And so our job is to not be mad at the darkness, but to go and be a light to the darkness. So many Christians are so hostile to the darkness, ready to, ready to bite its head off and you know, fight it and what have you. To be sure, we'll fight uh, demonic forces that are out there, but people ensnared in this stuff need our compassion, and above all, they need the truth of the gospel. Remember the past so you won't be judgmental. Remember the past so you won't go back to it. Remember the past so that as it's creeping in, you're sensitive. I think of Exodus 15 and 16. When Israel has been rescued from slavery, you remember the story? And Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And what does Israel start doing? Praise God, we were rescued. Not in Exodus 15 and 16. They start grumbling. I missed those onions back in Egypt, you know. I'm going to go back in Egypt and get some salsa. You know, and they start grumbling to Moses like, I want to I go back. We, you forget how bad it was. That was slavery. You did, don't, don't go back to that. And so too this morning, as you've heard the gospel proclaimed to you, this, this triune God, if you haven't been saved by Him, come to Him today. Stop looking back. Stop relying on yourself. He alone is the one that you can rely on and trust to lift your guilt and shame and to reconcile you with the God of heaven. Speaking of the gospel in Exodus, the gospel ushers in a new Exodus. We have a new liberator. His name is Jesus. Like Moses, who delivered the people out of slavery, uh, physical slavery in Egypt, the new liberator, the new Moses who has come, rescues us from slavery to sin and death. So as we come now to the communion table, we have a, a piece of a bread before us, and we have a, a cup of juice before us. The, the very things in the Exodus, as God provided manna, bread for the people, as, as the blood of, of innocent sheep were slaughtered in the Passover, so too we have the innocent Lamb of God, whose blood washes away our sin, we have the bread of life, our new manna, our new Moses, a new exodus, the church of God in this age. So let's sing. Let's have communion. As we close our service, we'll come to the table now. If you're new here, I'm going to pray a blessing over the table, and we'll be led in song, and we'll come to the table and, 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 and meditate upon Christ. Meditate upon the gospel that has just been spoken to you and is now pictured in the table. 
Now, Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for the saints of Delray. And Lord, as we come to the table now, Lord, we pray that you would bless this meal that we are about to receive and that you would use it to draw us in worship of you. As we sing these final songs of worship, O oh God, we ask that you would be honored in our praise. Lord, we offer this, this table, as many will make offerings now too, we offer our offerings unto you and these songs unto you to glorify your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.